Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I know it's been uh, at least a good four days since I was on the air last, but I sure did miss um, being with you all uh, from the time I was on the air last until now. But as I've said before, and I'd say it again, life doesn't always revolve around podcasting. There are a lot of other important things that do go on um, in life, which um, can be seen as a good thing. But I do know this much, uh, when I'm not podcasting, I find plenty of other things that um, need to be done. And I also have the time to be able to prepare for what lies down the road when it comes to upcoming podcast episodes. So in other words, there's research, there's um, analysis. In other words, ciphering through chapters and deciding on what's, uh, what is important to cover, what should be held off given that, you know, there's 60 minutes of uh, podcast time per um, episode segment. So the bottom line is, is that it's one thing to podcast, but my priority is to always make sure that I give you all the best uh, information there is per each uh, episode segment so that the greater story over time does um, have uh, broad relevance. So, what we're going to be discussing in this uh, podcast uh, segment to the Whiskey Rebellion, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and the frontier rebels who challenged America's newfound sovereignty, uh, we're going to be learning about uh, money. And I know uh, many of y'all are thinking, why money? Well, I can tell you this much, um, you know, back in the 18th century, you know, we don't have such things or luxuries as ATMs, automated teller machines, uh, there are those who might have access to silver and gold, but wouldn't it be fair to say that those who do have access to silver and gold make up a small percentage of society? Uh, perhaps so. But on the other hand, you don't necessarily have to be in the rank of the uh, gentry status just to have the gold and silver. You could be a well-to-do uh, middle-class merchant or upper-middle-class uh, merchant whom has uh, strong connections. The bottom line is that uh, if you do have access to silver and gold, use it wisely, because if not, that silver that you have, and what I mean by silver, folks, is um, coins, or what, um, or what I've learned at uh, Colonial Williamsburg, is that you would have uh, coins that would be um, cut into eighths, one-eighths, so in other words, if you know that you need to have some repairs done on a fine piece of silver pewter, you might take one-eighth of that coin that would go towards um, what the laborer, him, him or herself, would need to do in order to make the necessary uh, repairs on your silver, on your fine piece of silver. So in other words, not all of your silver coin would be going um, to waste over one purchase. It might be fair to say that we will learn about other forms of money, but other forms of money that uh, have greater have had greater tendencies to fluctuate, most notably uh, during the times during the time uh, prior to and around uh, when shots were fired around the world, and even in the aftermath of when the American Revolutionary War ended. But all of this is important because. Um, you know, as a young republic, we have to, we've got to figure out how we're going to move forward in collecting revenue. We've got to figure out how we're going to get out of um, 
the sticky situations with outstanding debts, not only domestically, but abroad. After all, you know, we just um, fought a long eight years war. Uh, foreign nations, most notably France, came to our aid and lent us money. So, you know, we can't, this young republic simply cannot escape not only just debt, but it cannot escape any issue involving money. So it might be fair to say that no matter how big or small our financial issues are, we can't ignore them. And I think that should be fair to say in life, no matter how big or small a problem may be involving money, it can't be ignored. Because if the problems do get ignored over over time, they become bigger to where um, they may not be resolved at all. And what I mean by resolved is that they may not be, be resolved peacefully, but instead they could um, become so heated where... Um, where uh, bridges get burned, uh, alliances could be uh, destroyed. So the bottom line is that no matter how big or small this young republic going into the 17, late 1780s and what we're going up against, uh, we have a lot of issues at stake. And the most important thing is going to be how are we going to raise the money that will start gradually getting us out of the financial turmoil that... Um, that we're uh, currently facing. So our uh, first leadoff question is the following. What is an excise tax? I know many of you have probably heard of excise taxes, but an excise tax is one that is imposed on a manufactured good that gets imposed right away versus doing so at time of sale or transaction. So immediately, uh, once the goods, or in this case, um, a particular man manufactured good gets made, the tax is going to be instituted right away. In March of 1791, the first United States Congress passed legislation enacting tax on whiskey. And folks, whiskey, isn't it a manufactured good? Man-made good? Yes, Alexander Hamilton, our Treasury Secretary at the time, viewed the whiskey tax as a, as a big victory, given it would help generate revenue long-term behind eliminating outstanding Revolutionary War debts at home and abroad. And, you know, I believe I did mention earlier about how France came to our aid during the uh, Revolutionary War, most notably after the American victory at Saratoga, uh, New York. Well, it's not so much that the French came to our side as an ally, but they lent us money. Uh, they lent us a lot of money, uh, most notably money that went towards um, muskets, uh, rifles, even cannons alone. Uh, people don't realize just how much uh, the French uh, were able to uh, go as far as terms of lending us um <laughs> necessary uh, long-term supplies, uh, other provisions, etc. But, you know, it's one thing to be lent all this money, but you do need to repay those whom have lent you the money back. So, for Alexander Hamilton, he is envisioning a greater um, long-term plan in that the whiskey tax will not only help eliminate Revolutionary War debts at home, but will also, over time, 
reduce the uh, debts, uh, Revolutionary War debts from abroad, being that of France. It's all a grand plan, but at the same time, you have to wonder, can even the treasure, Treasury Secretary alone please everybody? I mean, Alexander Hamilton's not the president, but, but he does have to wonder, are there going to be those whom are going to face, whom are going to be stiffly opposed to this? Well, besides uh, Congress, did all 13 colonies, per their state legislatures, raise money during the Revolutionary War's eight-year duration? You know, we have to be reminded that Congress did not always um, function. You know, we always have this assumption that Congress was the one that was um, pumping out money uh, throughout the eight-year um, course of the American Revolutionary War. But we should be reminded that all 13 colonies uh, shelled out money as well. However, there is a, um, there is a, I guess what you call a disadvantage here. Yes, it was great that each state did um, shell out money um, throughout the course of the eight-year uh, war. Of course, not all 13 states might have been pitching in money at the same time, but a handful of them were. But the biggest hurdle would have to be that each state had its own currency. So in other words, uh, the money that Virginia was using to fund the war was not the same as Massachusetts's, nor was it the same as, say, South Carolina's. Or Pennsylvania's. I mean, I could go on and on, but the bottom line is that, you know, each state is its own separate entity. All 13 colonies or states are, are at this point, their own separate entities. We don't have a uniform system of play just yet. But given the fact that each state did have its own currency, it did make matters for war funding all the more complicated. And would you say that the states are using paper money or hard money? Paper money. But we must keep in mind that paper currency was not actual money. But yet it was issued amongst the colonies given cash. And we have to remember in 18th century times, folks, cash, when we think of cash, it's not paper money. Cash in 18th century was referred to in the forms of gold and silver. The problem is that gold and silver are very scarce. Not everyone has access to gold and silver. As I mentioned earlier, only a small percentage of the American people who are wealthy enough could have access to silver and gold. And if you are in the uh, gentry status of society and you have enough silver in your home, in terms of uh, fine silver pewter, then you are obviously showing a sign of just how um, solid your status is within the greater uh, community. Hang tight here for just a moment, folks. I'll tell you, nothing beats good um, hot tea. And of course, I know I've said it before and I'd say it again. If I mentioned that during the time of the uh, Boston Tea Party, and I was living in Massachusetts, they would frown upon me. They would say, "Who are? where do your loyalties stand? Are you with us or, or, or are you with the loyalists? In other words, if you're with the loyalists, then we don't want to have anything to do with you. But 
But you know what? Uh, times are obviously much different, and um, therefore I, I'm very thankful that, um, that I can enjoy a glass of hot tea without being um, subjected to um, unfair treatment. Now, in the uh, summer of 1776, I'm not sure if this was um, issued prior to the Declaration of Independence being officially adopted as the, um, as the uh, official uh, document based upon uh, the grievances um, issued against uh, Parliament and the King had gone into effect, or if it was after um, Congress had officially declared July 4th as the official day of um, severing all ties with England. But I do know that at some point during the summer of 1776, uh, Congress began issuing bonds to raise money for the Continental Army, but did so at 4% interest. Now, as we move along in this uh, podcast segment, we're going to uh, learn about some uh, situations where, um, for one, uh, compromises were made, uh, sacrifices were made, in terms of, um, not only in just terms of generating revenue, but what had to be done in order to, in order to keep um, paper money um, modified to where it actually stood a chance of being able to compete with hard currency being gold and silver. So I'll just tell you this much: I'm not a, um, I'm not on the Federal Reserve. <laughs> I don't have a financial degree background. In, ter- in other words, I didn't study uh, finance in college, but I did feel that it was necessary to to do some research on this to pro- to provide all of you, my fellow listeners, a better understanding of what went into um, modifying the financial system during a time of war and after, because you know our country just didn't. Um, our country felt a lot of uh, side effects during a time of war and after. You know, it's very hard to stay afloat financially in times of crisis, and even that alone is vague. But in a time of war, especially when we're um, trying to liberate ourselves against um, the mightiest empire in the world, and, you know, it's one thing to liberate yourself, but how are you going to remain afloat financially, not only in the present, but in the future? So, in the summer of 1776, Congress began issuing bonds to raise money for the Continental Army, but did so at 4% interest. Not long afterwards, Congress decided to ante up the interest to 6%, especially considering a small group of well-to-do men in New York had federal certificates where the interest was paid at 6%. It sounds like to me when when we hear the term small group of well-to-do men, to me this means that we're looking at, a, at, a, at the wealthy, not just the wealthy, but an elite group of men whom really know how to play their cards right. And it, wouldn't it be fair to say that those who know how to play their cards right do have a stake in overseeing um, what the nation uh, could achieve in the midst of war, in terms of uh, being able to uh, remain financially afloat as best as possible? Absolutely. The only effective ways behind retaining paper currency's value from a modified approach against metal, 
okay? Metal being like the silver and, and the uh, gold, but most notably the silver. Okay, so the most effective ways behind rotating the paper currency's value from a modified approach, and this is something that the Confederation Congress struggled to do, and that and that pertained to focusing upon limiting overall number of bills in operational uh, status, or what we would call circulation. So circulation basically is the amount of money that's already issued, meaning that it's um, a, that it's uh, currently still afloat, versus money that's already removed. And what I mean by money already removed, how about uh, paying outstanding? paying debts that were um, still outstanding or just paying debts in general along with uh, retiring uh, current bills and circulation status which makes taxes instead uh, payable by paper itself so in other words if we print too many uh, bills that is, we print too much paper currency, that means that we have more paper uh, currency bills going out than what we have coming in in terms of collecting paid debts that would help replenish uh, the system. In other words, we need to have a system, really in a sense a system of checks and balances financially where, okay, if we have a certain degree of debt, we also need to have a certain degree of surplus, uh, surplus money that would go towards paying off the ex the existing debts that are where money has been um, already uh, issued uh, for uh, for whatever capacity it's uh, been needed to be um, out there in circulation. Congress during the Revolutionary War uh, comprised of delegates from thirteen separate entities. In other words, 13 states, colonies. Did Congress have any powers when it came to taxing anyone? Nope. Each state had to impose its own taxes to pay off outstanding interest rate amounts on continental paper. Okay, so if each state has, has to impose its own taxes, that means 13 separate entities paying 13 different um, versions of taxes just to pay off outstanding interest rate amounts on continental paper. So for all we know, the continental paper's value in Virginia it could be uh, the exact opposite of what it might be worth either in, say, Maryland or North Carolina. We now need to focus on some uh, individuals um, besides Alexander Hamilton whom um, played a significant part during the time of the American Revolutionary War from a financial standpoint. We do need to be reminded that there were um, men whom signed the Declaration of Independence who, um, who were not only just well-to-do men from a business standpoint, but the money they had accumulated, or wealth I should say, that wealth alone was used towards helping to fund um, the American Revolutionary War, not just short-term, but long-term. Yes, France lent us money, but let's be reminded that there were men in Congress, including men who signed the Declaration of Independence, who um, made sacrifices by using whatever money they had at their own personal disposable 
or disposal in uh, helping uh, fund the war long term. So one man in particular that stands out is Robert Morris. For starters, he's considered to be a founding father of the United States. He served as a big financial contributor to the American Revolutionary War. He was only he was one of uh, six men whom signed both the Declaration of Independence and Constitution. He was a well-to-do business merchant. Of course, when I think of well-to-do business merchants, uh, if I had to pick another uh, founding father um, who was a well-to-do business merchant, uh, right off the top of my head, it would have been uh, John Hancock of uh, Massachusetts. By 1775, Robert Morris was the richest man in America. He surpassed John Hancock. After the Revolutionary War began, he went about obtaining arms and ammunition for the greater war effort. And from 1781 to 1784, he held superintendent of finance post, which also led to his securing supplies for General Washington's battle siege of Yorktown. You know, this to me is a great sacrifice because it would be easy for some people to sit back and think, well, uh, we'll just let outsiders like France fund us or provide us with the necessary money in going about keeping the war effort alive. No, we have to rely, you know, sometimes we have to turn to people who have... Um, who are well-educated in certain um, fields. And from a business standpoint, Robert Morris had, had established a lot of uh, solid connections overseas with his business. Uh, we should be reminded that many of our business merchants are doing more than just overseeing that goods go from point A to point B in uh, colonial America. But, of course, prior to shots being fired around the world and um, severing ties from England, many of them did have strong um, business ties with uh, merchants in uh, London uh, and so forth. But Robert Morris, um, yes, he should be, uh, we should uh, be reminded of his uh, great sacrifices and that he went about procuring arms and ammunition for the uh, greater war effort. It could be fair to say that um, some of our, our forefathers whom, have, whom were uh, very uh, successful businessmen knew how to use their money well to where we might consider that as an example of old money. In other words, you know, they knew where to use it at best, but they knew uh, not to go about you know, flaunting it. Robert Morris uh, supported uh, Congress's decision to pay investors the full 6% interest, but doing so per what is referred to as bills of exchange. Does anybody know what bills of exchange are? Certificates authorized by merchant firms, and not just by merchant firms, but how about European governments, to banking institutions. And I think it'd be fair to say that when we talk of banking institutions in the 18th century uh, during this time of war, we've got to think of Europe. We don't have um, a Bank of America just yet, 
we don't have we won't have until after the American Revolutionary War and after um, the Young um, Republic gets established when the first Congresses uh, take effect. We won't have what's called uh, the Bank of the United States. So when so it is fair to say that when, we, that when we think of banking institutions during the time of the American Revolutionary War, think of uh, banking institutions overseas. And we should be reminded that John Adams, he went overseas uh, during um, the latter part of the American Revolutionary War, and his one of his uh, missions overseas was to obtain um, a loan or rather that is a loan of uh, credit from uh, Holland, uh, from a bank in Holland, in order to um, be able to um, get um, proper, um, in order to secure further funding for the war effort. And not just for the war effort itself, but once the war was ended, or once the war ended on how to uh, go about paying back um, the money that was uh, that was secured per the loan uh, from overseas. So, uh, anyway, so this uh, bills of exchange being certificates authorized by merchant firms, European governments, to banking institutions, they were backed by solid coin reserves. Bills of exchange would go about being traded at the same value price of metal. Robert Morris went on to make a deal with France involving a huge cash borrow out where bondholders were guaranteed their payments per means of bills of exchange. So it sounds like to me that bondholders need to have their priorities met first above um, other people below since they are the ones whom um, seem to have uh, consistency not only with investing, but being able to um, trade at the same value price of metal. Now, over time, results did come in where continental paper value began improving. I can provide an example here. So let's take, an, take this uh, scenario. Okay, you've got $1,000 of continental paper that's worth only $200 in trade. One could remove... $200 and go instead with a $1,000 bond at 6% interest via metal. Four interest payments by themselves could still keep a $1,000 bond intact, which did so through March of 1778 when this particular deal plan ended. Four interest payments, folks, that means $250 uh, per payment could still keep a $1,000 bond intact. So in other words, we didn't have to pay the $1,000 bond off right away, but if the um, $1,000 bond at 6% interest remained like it was via um, means of uh, metal, and you paid the, the interest payments in four installments of $250, that $1,000 bond um, is still going to remain intact. It may not be the grandest of plans, but it worked for a period of time, and obviously there was um, improve there was some improvements in the continental um, overall worth of uh, continental paper uh, value. Did Alexander Hamilton look up to Robert Morris? 
Yes, even during the midst of fighting in the Revolutionary War, Alexander Hamilton found time to read about all things financial, and Hamilton himself ardently supported what Morris stood by regarding bills of exchange. So it could be fair to say that Alexander Hamilton might be a somewhat of a protege to uh, Robert Morris. In other words, Morris could be seen as a financial professor of sorts, and here you have Alexander Hamilton who um, who has um, quit his studies at King's College that we know now know as um, Columbia University, but he is making a sacrifice on his end by um, serving in the greater war effort, but at the same time is finding um, finding whatever free oppor free uh, moments of opportunity to study all things financial. For um, Morris and Hamilton during the Revolutionary War and after war's end, the focus centered upon ensuring creditors' needs came first. Okay, when you know we think of creditors, it's obviously fair to say that they are the ones whom are lending an individual or individuals or an entity money. It's good to have money lent to you, but wouldn't it be fair to say that if creditors are lending you money, that that you as a debtor, that you need to do whatever there is possible to uh, repay back a creditor? Yes. So Robert Morris does a couple of uh, things that that, yes, one could see as being um, a little sketchy or unfair, but Robert Morris is also thinking about the needs of those from above whom, whose stakes might be a little bit higher. Robert Morris suspended all army pay to prohibiting state legislatures from paying their own soldiers. But at the same time, Morris himself requested that the states direct their monies to Congress. However, the states didn't always fully comply. For Robert Morris, the greater problem became one where Congress was not collecting essential taxes from everyday people. Okay, so uh, during the time of the American Revolutionary War, when we think of everyday people, whom should we be referring to? Farmers, laborers, artisans. Or, you know, what we might think of laborers like, you know, tradespeople. For Robert Morris, he envisioned a system where people from all the states pay federal taxes paid by the people to Congress, but by means of hard money. Coins <laughs> or hard money. The only problem might be is that there here, once again, not everybody has access to uh, being able to pay uh, taxes by means of hard uh, money. Morris's taxation plan scheme was definitely a grand one, but by 1791, Hamilton's uh, whiskey tax became something of a resistance movement along the Pennsylvania frontier, one pitting creditors against debtors. A never-ending battle, even in present-day times, over how uh, creditors struggle in terms of trying to get their money back 
from those whom are in debt. You know, it's one thing to be in debt, but people can be in debt for all sorts of reasons. Prior to hostilities breaking out in 1791 with federal tax collectors along western Pennsylvania's uh, frontier, had there been people's movement activities regarding proper distribution of wealth and credit. Yes, uh, during the 1770s, many people demanded reforms where labor productivity profits wouldn't all go into the hands of the few, into the hands of the few or a wealthy elite. Unchecked access to the uh, profits or that is to the labor uh, performed by the many, being the farmers, artisans, tradespeople, was seen really as hurting larger communities, given the few and the elite were not visible and seeing firsthand the necessary sacrifices that uh, went into making goods tied into um, the livelihoods of those along the frontier. So, in other words, here the frontier people are 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 putting in a lot of sacrifice into their um, into the goods they produce, but yet they're not really getting a big return on what they're uh, producing. In other words, they feel that only the few are the ones that are reaping in the greater rewards, and the many along the frontier aren't really getting. They're not feeling as though they should, as though their, uh, as though their value is worth um, the is worth what the amount of work that goes into uh, making these products. Really, in a sense, you could say that this is a battle between the the big guy versus the little guy. Now, for many uh, people living along the uh, the frontier, and not just on the frontier, but um, but even, say, um, inland, you know, inland from the coast, maybe, say, in the central part of a state, paper, in a sense, was seen as everyday means for engaging in financial transactions, considering only a select few or uh, wealthy could access the hard currency being silver and gold. Paper currency in small numbers gave many many of individuals a sense of financial identity without having to re rely upon prominent men like Robert Morris to John Hancock. Um, you know, if you can afford to turn to men like Robert Morris and John Hancock for um, financial um, guidance, or not just guidance, but for, um, for financial investments in terms of uh, wanting to... Um, and wanting to uh, have money lent um, from those men to you, then you're doing really well on the greater uh, economic ladder. But if you're John Smith or uh, Tom Jones, and you're just a, an average middling farmer who makes you know 12 pounds a year, I think it'd be very hard to uh, do business with men like Robert Morris to John Hancock because uh, you know couple of business deals and you know your money might be gone for the rest of the year and who's to say that you might there's no guarantee that you might get a good business return um, back on what you have uh, produced I'm not saying that men like Robert Morris and John Hancock wouldn't care about what you had produced but 
if you know that you don't have the money to invest long term with those um, merchants, then you should know that you should you should know right away that it would be best to uh, use your money for other um, proper necessary means. High payments often meant not being able to retire existing debts. So here's another uh, dilemma where creditors and debtors went up against each other. So if there are high payments, that means that those whom are in debt are not going to be able to retire what's already on the uh, forefront with regards to um, outstanding um, payments. This led creditors to intervene by taking over uh debtors uh, labor and property so in other words labor being the work and the property um, being the land um, any other um, buildings uh, in terms of um, what we might think of as like sheds where uh, tools are stored uh, failure to pay often resulted in creditors uh, seizing farmers lands including businesses Seizure of property also led creditors to sell debtors' lands, livestock, furniture, only to become, in many instances, new recipients behind property originally not theirs. So, in other words, more often than not, creditors, yes, if it's one thing for them to engage in selling a debtor's land or livestock and furniture, more often than not, the creditor might be the the creditors might be the ones who uh, became those uh, recipients, and that they would be the ones um, in possession of what had originally belonged to a debtor or to um, debtors in general. Now, Robert Morris, as grand of as grand of uh, as grand of the plans that he had, and yes, he did see success himself. Even Robert Morris himself saw firsthand in Pennsylvania, his home state, that the overall issues regarding paper led um, to led well-known figures like Thomas Paine, author of Common Sense, aligning themselves with large crowds whom spoke out against uh, uneven economic practices. I, well, it doesn't come as a surprise that Thomas Paine would have aligned himself with large crowds um, in uh, protest of uh, uneven economic practices. Uh, for those of you who were with me when we talked about uh, Thomas Paine last year, uh, we should be reminded that even Thomas Paine himself did not come from a well-to-do family. Uh, he came from a very uh, poor family in uh, Tetford, England, and... Um, you know the the, um, the the economic circumstances that he um, lived under were not um, were not very uh, pleasant. In other words, um, his family, he and his family, uh, were uh, subjected to the rules of the elite, and the elite had pretty much they they ran the show. So I can see how the author of Common Sense still would be willing to identify himself as a commoner, and really, in a sense, was one whom had never forgotten where he had come from. And yes, Common Sense may have sold numerous, sold thousands of copies, but yet Thomas Paine um, didn't grow uh, too big for his britches. In other words, he never, he never forgot where he came from, but 
but he knew that he still had a priority in um, in aligning himself with those whom were not as fortunate as he had been at one time himself. Uh, what is an impost? Well, an impost is a uh, tax or a set of taxes enacted by the government on imported goods. Robert Morris, Alexander Hamilton were among the many whom supported um, impost measures for debt reduction and revenue purposes. But not all 13 states were in unison. Of course, when we think of unison, that means uh, total agreement. Not all 13 states were in unison over the impost matter. The objections over the imposts would lead to further delays behind resolving key issues. Sometimes we even see that in today's um, modern Congress where not everybody comes in together in complete uh, harmony or uh, unison, complete agreement. And that, you know, leads to uh, delays in getting um, essential uh, projects um, met in a timely manner. In late 1782, where was General George Washington and his army stationed? So now we're going to uh, refocus some uh, energy on um, George Washington because what we've got to talk about next here is very important. It's not so much where George Washington and his army are stationed, but there's going to be another crisis. It seems, it pretty much seemed like even throughout the, the eight year war, while, yes, there were moments of jubilation, excitement, that we had won a battle, that we um, not just won battles, we were able to keep the flames of independence alive. But throughout this whole eight-year course, it seems as though it's been one struggle after another. Yes, we can celebrate a victory, but we can only celebrate but for so long because who's to say that this that this moment of triumph might not get overshadowed by um, by a matter that we don't have control over. So, in late 1782, where was General George Washington and his army stationed? Uh, they were stationed near Newburgh, New York, along the vast hills surrounding Hudson River. Newburgh, New York, is in New York State. It's not far from uh, Middletown. It's also near. Um, Rock Tavern, um, Highland, uh, Montgomery, um, not too far from the uh, Catskills of uh, New York State and the uh, southern um, tier of, of, of New York State, not far from uh, the uh, New York State, New York City line. As a matter of fact, Newburgh's not too terribly far from West Point. Washington's army had endured multiple trials of survival over the past seven years, and while at Newburgh, new tensions arose involving officers and soldiers not receiving pay as had been promised years earlier when war with England first began. You know, more often than not, uh, Washington, and along with other officers, faced constant trials with keeping um, enlistments up, and when enlistments got down, they had to come up with new measures so in other words, they would say, okay, if I can get X number of men to join, I will see, we can see to it, or we will, we will see to it that after war's end that you all will receive anywhere from 50 to 100 acres of land west of where you all live. And, and by doing so, 
when this war is over, you and your family can move westward to establish um, to establish a presence along western frontier territory that had not been provided to us um, after the uh, 1763 Proclamation Treaty had been put in place that, of course, had ended the French and Indian War. So Washington and other officers had to find means of enticing men to enlist, and doing so meant, okay, you know, you put in X number of years, you'll get 50 to 100 acres of land, and you will also receive X amount of um, money um, for your services. Well, for, we should remind ourselves, too, that Wash, it wasn't about money, but at the same time, Washington was desperate for troops. And other officers serving Washington from below were desperate for troops, too. So they had to come up with whatever means there were possible to entice soldiers not only to enlist for one year, but beyond the one-year time. So for General Washington, he's not immune to what's at stake now, because even he himself is facing uh, bankruptcy. He's on the verge of bankruptcy but he is placing the blame on Congress. Questions over military service pay uh, were daunting, given how many officers and servicemen had sacrificed so much over these eight, over what were nearing uh, the eight-year mark. Henry Knox, who was uh, Washington's uh, most distinguished officers in the inner uh, circle, but he was Washington's artillery general, he wrote a petition, or I should say a letter to Congress, advising how serious the situation at Newburgh, New York, had become. Officers, uh, per Knox's petition, requested pensions. And for those, uh, for those of you whom are young and listening to my podcast, if you're not sure about what pensions are, yes, you could ask your parents. But if you'd like to know now, I will be more than happy to tell you now what pensions are. Pensions are regular payments made during one's retirement from their employer, and in this case, during the time of the American Revolutionary War, it would have been the government. At least that's what we would have thought. But Robert Morris met with officer representatives from Newburgh in Philadelphia early 1783 to resolve the issues at stake. Morris saw a solution by asking that federal taxes go towards paying the officers and all creditors because the biggest fear at stake still pending was was a potential mutiny or a coup you know if there was one thing george washington feared it was mutiny revolt overthrowing overthrowing someone from above or overthrowing an institution above to where it would result in anarchy chaos if there's one thing George Washington cannot, cannot tolerate and won't tolerate is mutiny. After all, we should be reminded that even during the Revolutionary War, there were a couple of attempts at mutiny uh, at Valley Forge and at uh, Moore in 1778 and at Morristown, New Jersey in 1779. And it wasn't so much mutiny in this case, but in the event that states did not agree to the federal taxes. There's a lot of uncertainty, folks. And we're not even, I mean, yes, we may have, General Lord Charles Cornwallis and his uh, forces may have surrendered it to Washington at Yorktown in October of 1781, but even that surrender alone 
was not enough to put the final icing on the cake, given what we're dealing with now. Alexander Hamilton opposed the proposal to levy the impost for paying officers, but he did favor the need for bondholders to be paid. So Arthur St. Clair, and I want to say uh, for whom St. Clairsville, Ohio is named after, he was a Morris ally. He urged the officer uh, representatives to accept half pay in interest-bearing bonds. Failure to accept payment in bonds meant not getting anything. This is where it sounds like there needs to be some compromises. You may not get everything, but if you get half of it, it's better than nothing. Washington wrote to Congress insisting that officer demands be met in the form of payments to where mutiny would be avoided at all costs. All army requests made without further issues. Officers agreed to a payout in interest-bearing bonds. One small step, but it's also one big step in the right direction. Given officers accepted uh, payouts in interest-bearing bonds, what organization uh, did they go about forming before 1783's end? It's still in existence today. It was very questionable in its early years, uh, the Society of the Cincinnati, a hereditary organization uh, with chapters in each state. Each Continental Army officer was a member, including each officer's eldest male descendant, per every future generation would become a member. The societal organization helped unify families whose rank and statuses helped shape America's future path behind creating the United States Constitution. And what do you know, the new society's president was none other than General George Washington. Soldiers received between $200 to $300 in bonds at the officer's orders. This was a temporary deal, given that all other back pay for soldiers was held off as a final settlement amongst the states. So in other words, if you were from Virginia, whatever back pay was still outstanding, you would have to take that up with the, um, with the legislature. It may not have been the best solution, but look, you know, uh, to get between $200 and $300 in bonds at, per an officer's order, that to me is better than not getting anything at all. The Pennsylvania troops, however, rebelled over, no, over the non-payment matter. Bond-holding officers went about putting down a rebellion. The soldiers were, be to, were to be paid three-month salary per Robert Morris's financial, uh, or what we would refer to as banknotes, but by the time Congress approved the authority of Morris's plan, everyone had already gone home. The Pennsylvania soldiers received little to no pay. So the frontier, folks, is comprised now of broke and financially unstable veterans whom had sacrificed so much over eight years, but yet didn't really receive anything to um, say thank you for your service. It seems as though uh, Pennsylvania's got some issues, a lot of unfinished business that, um, that needs to be taken care of because 
if not, there are going to be some other issues down the road, but it might be fair to say that um, that what is now surfacing in 1791 does bear... Um, resentment amongst the frontiers men whom had not been fully compensated like they had been promised um, years earlier around the time that the Revolutionary War had officially ended around uh, 1783 and then um, and so forth. So, you know, it's one thing, you know, we can't fault Robert Morris under no conditions or under no circumstances. I mean, he has gone above and beyond to try to make every modified uh, solution there is possible. And the fact that, you know, now, you know, by the time Congress approved of Morris's plan, everybody's gone home. It's almost as if Congress just took its sweet time. They should have um, reached a decision a lot sooner, because had they reached a decision a lot sooner... Pennsylvania's frontiers men would have gotten some kind of um, would have gotten some kind of solution um, to the matter at hand. It may not have been the grandest solution, but it would have been better than none. I certainly do hope that we have um, that all of you, my fellow listeners, uh, learned a great deal from a um, financial standpoint, based upon what was at stake um, during the course of the Revolutionary War, from a and realizing just how um, shaky uh, paper money itself was and how paper money could be um, modified per its uh, value um, against um, the hard currency. Now, when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk about um, a little bit more about whiskey. And I'm sure many of you are thinking, what is there to know exactly about whiskey that maybe we don't know before? Well, we're going to need to learn about um, how whiskey itself was produced and how um, and how whiskey, um, in some instances, may have been a seasonal thing for farmers along the frontier. We're also going to need to learn about, um, we're going to also learn some more about Robert Morris and, and what he and another um, delegate whom... Um, was also in that elite category of being one of six men to sign not only just uh, to whom signed both the uh, Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution. So we're going to learn a little bit more about some uh, compromises behind um, behind um, bank related matters, as well as um, a little bit more about whiskey. So thank you for your time as always. And thank you again for being such ardent listeners. Um, If it weren't for you all, I'm not sure where I would be, but I do thank you all for um, helping me uh, be successful at uh, podcasting and all. Thank you for your time as always, and no matter where you live in the world, uh, continue to stay safe. Take care.